Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben Lewis, and I'm reading the scripture this morning. Uh, and this is uh, from Romans 4, 1 to 12, if you want to follow along. Uh, so what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believed but have not been circumcised. Uh, sorry. But have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the father of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. Thanks, Ben, for sharing the word of the Lord with us this morning. Well, I'm just going to intro real quickly. We're going to watch a video in a second. We're going through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans uh, has perplexed lots of people through the years because there's lots of, it's, it's a very rich book. Uh, you end up getting to places where you're like, I'm not sure if I totally get it. And so we want to give as much as we can to help you get it and also benefit from it. So I'll give you a quick recap, but then we're going to have a video recap for you visual learners. I'm one of them, and you'll, I think that'll help you as well. So the first few weeks of Romans, we talked about it being the good, bad, and the ugly. We're saying the good is, is in chapter 1. Paul says a righteousness from God has been revealed. And a righteousness, um, it's basically talking about how to be right with God, right? How to be God. It's been revealed. There's a way to be right with God, and that's through trusting in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Uh, but it's not very good news. And maybe even back then it was more good news, but it's not very good news in our modern culture if you don't know the bad news first. It's like, oh, God's willing to have a relationship with me. Oh, that's, that's good. Like, I didn't know that any different about that. Um, so Paul takes great pains to talk about not just the good news, but also the bad news. And so that's what we talked about in the second week. We talked about how people without God um, have exchanged... Um, they've exchanged the knowledge of God, they've exchanged gratitude towards God, they've exchanged relationship with God for all sorts of other things. So here's God who deserves honor, gratitude, and glory from those he's created, and we don't give it. We trade it in for created things. We trade it in for our own glory. And uh, so God not only allows us to do this, but then he, he gives us over to the natural consequences that come with us. And, and chapter 1 talks about having that as a result we have darkened hearts, we have futile thinking, we're given over to shameful lusts. Um, and so if you were a religious Jew, 
reading this back in the day, you might feel pretty smug at this moment when you're reading this um, because it's like Paul, Paul is using terminology. He's talking about people who are godless or people without God, or he's even going so far as to say, talk about people who are wicked. And actually, later on in the book, he's going to basically sum up the people he's talking about who are godless and wicked as the Gentiles, which is mean people who are not Jewish. Now, it sounds like, wow, Paul really loves the Jews, and Paul really doesn't like people who aren't Jews. But just like Admiral Akbar would have said in Star Wars, it's a trap. Thank you. It's a trap. It's a trap. He's setting these religious Jews up for what comes next. And so then when he gets into chapter 2, he tells them it's not just good, not just bad, but here's the ugly. Not just non-religious people, but religious people are all in the same boat. Religious or not, everyone, Gentile or Jew, is under the power of sin and is a sinner. And not a single one of us are righteous and judgment is coming. And so Paul hangs us out over this, you know, with the wrath of God, the judgment of God. He talks about it and talks about it and talks about it until uh, chapter 3 and verse 21. And the reason, he, I, I shared this a couple weeks ago, but I think the reason he does this is because we resist this. We're natural self-justifiers. We're naturally self-righteous. We naturally uh, try to make a case for why we're a good person. And so we resist anything that says, I'm a sinner, or I've done wrong, or I, or um, there's any reason why God would judge me, or why God, there's wrath stored up for me. So Paul makes that case, and makes that case, and makes that case. And probably the best one uh, sermon in the series on that was, uh, I think, the second week where Pastor Kurt just dove into the rest of chapter 1, just making the case about the wrath of God, wrath of God that it's warranted, uh, it's also measured, and that it is absorbed in Christ, that Jesus takes the cup of the wrath of God and he drinks it himself. He takes the, the, the just punishment we deserve for, for throwing away our regard for our Creator and he takes that on himself. So that's a great helpful one. If you want to go back in the series, you can watch that on our YouTube page. Um, but so Paul hangs us out there in the badness and the ugliness of sin, feeling our guilt and our helplessness to do anything about it. And he does that all the way up until chapter 3 and verse 21. But what I want to do, again, to give you a bigger picture of what Romans is all about, is we're going to watch a, about an eight-minute video here, and then I'm going to come back and share some more. But I do want you to understand the bigger picture, especially these first few chapters, because they're sort of like a snapshot of the whole book. They sort of set up the ideas that the whole book will be based upon. And so the, well, want that to get really clear for you. So here you go. Let's watch this together. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called 
churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension. So that by Paul's day, the Roman church was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. 
The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family, and it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Is it a little clear, clearer for you, the, what we're talking about? I hope that it is. Um, I said that the good news begins in Romans 3.21, and Pastor Kurt jumped into it last week, but I want to just recap, just read through the scripture. It says, it's all bad news, bad news, ugly news. Everyone's under sin and feeling trapped and helpless, and then Romans 3.21 happens. It says, but now, apart from the law, a righteous, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given. So it's a gift. It's not something you earn. It, it comes, the verse says, through faith in, G in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. So this is a message of total inclusiveness and equality. All have sinned. We're all equally guilty before God. And then the good news part is that all can be justified by God's grace through what Jesus did to bring us back into right relationship with God. So we can, we're all sinned and we all can be justified. No one is excluded by, with, by this. No one is excluded. And so there's, there's no, no way of looking at some group of people and looking down on them and saying, well, they're just not as, as, as holy as I am, but we all recognize our absolute need for a Savior. And so that humbles us and then the fact that God provided the Savior in Jesus, and that ex- excites us and, and, uh, and brings gratitude into our hearts as we come to trust in that, as we come to believe that and, uh, and follow in that. And so all are justified. Justified is an interesting word, but it's easy if you just think of how the word's laid out. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Or, I learned this a few years ago, and it really hit me deeply, just as if I'd always obeyed. Can you imagine? Like the only person, I always tell my kids, the only person who never sinned and always obeyed was Jesus. He came and lived a sinless life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. He could be the perfect stand-in for us. He lived the life we were supposed to live. And then he died a death that we were supposed to die on our behalf so that we could have this exchange where he would give us his standing with God and take on himself our sin and our shame. So he justifies, and we're justified freely by his grace. It's not something that we can earn through what Jesus did. So, verse 25, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. I won't get into the whole sacrificial system, but atonement is another word that works very similarly. Uh, You can think of it this way. Atone is like at one. Uh, God meant to be at one with you. He wanted relationship with you. So he sent Jesus to make that possible. Keep going. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. How do you access it? You trust in it. You trust in it. You believe. You trust in what he's done. You receive it in your life as a gift. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, God is just, and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So where then is boasting? It is excluded. So so much of our boasting, virtue signaling, humble bragging, or defensiveness is our attempt to justify ourselves. And the good news is you don't need to do that. You don't need to hide. You don't need to hide who you are. You don't need to hide what you've done when it comes to God. You don't need to hide anymore. God is just. And you say, well, if it's just God is just, well, then I would feel I need to hide because I know what I've done. But he also justifies those who trust in what Jesus has done. Pastor Kurt's message last week was great. He had a great emphasis on the human desire to prove that you're a good person, to justify yourself, to justify myself. And he encouraged us to look at our our boasting And evaluate, are we boasting in our goodness or are we boasting in his grace? 
So you can be all about, yeah, look at me. This is what I've done. And you can boast in so many different ways, subtly, overtly. But are we boasting in our goodness or are we boasting in his grace? Great question he left us with. Verse 28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And this is the good news of the gospel. We're not trusting in what Jesus did and our good works. Again, Kurt last week, bringing up a series we did years ago out of the book of Galatians. Jesus plus nothing, right? Jesus plus nothing is God's mathematical formula for our justification, for us to be right with God. Not Jesus plus then a whole bunch of steps or Jesus plus all the ways in which we perform or live up to a standard. It's actually we're trusting completely in what Jesus did, period. So some people say, well, then where's the, aren't we supposed to do good works? Aren't, aren't Christians supposed to do good things? Absolutely. In fact, we were created for good works. God had in mind for you to do specific things before you were born. You're created for good works. But good works is not the way that you become right with God. You have to trust in what Jesus did to become right with God. And then after that, what flows out of that, and now that you're, um, you're getting right with God, it's you believe, you trust, you come to recognize that Jesus is his Lord. He's Lord of the universe. And he becomes personally Lord. You say, you, you can call the shots. You can be the boss of me. You, you, you lead. You lead. I led for a while, and I see where it got me. You lead. You be in charge. You're Lord in my life. And that's been the statement throughout the, the generations that Christians have come to. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of all, but he's Lord of me. He's Lord right here in this circle. And so... When that happens, how do you respond to that? Well, we, we respond by obedience. We begin to really uh, try to sense his direction for our lives, read the scriptures and see what he commands and to obey those commands. And then the other big bonus was that was, it's not just that we come into this uh, master-servant relationship with God, but we become sons and daughters of a good, of a good father. And so it's, it's not just sort of this uh, subservience or, of obedience Though obedience is a big part of it, it's also the delight of being in relationship with him. And so there's a gratitude there. As a son and daughter, we want to please our father. We want to please him. And so we embrace that. And, uh, and so our works, is there work? Absolutely. In fact, following God can be a lot of work. For some of you who are workaholics, maybe you're feeling good about that right now. I don't know. But it, there's a lot of work. There's a lot. In fact, the Apostle Paul would, is interesting because he would say it's not about earning salvation. But then when he talked about work ethic, he said, I strive, I strain, I beat my body, I work harder than anyone else. So the Christian life, there's a lot of effort in it. But there's no effort that can make you right with God that you can do. The effort has been done by Jesus, and you need to receive that in faith. Lay aside all your attempts to justify yourself and, and to make yourself righteous. All your self-righteous efforts are worthless in making yourself right with God. He made the way for you to be right with God, and you've got to trust in that. You've got to receive that as a gift. You've got to recognize him as the Lord that you need in your life and cry out for him. Cry out for him. I would tell you, if you're reading Romans... And you, and you don't have that sense of your need for God, well, read Romans 1 and 2 again, all the way up to 3.20. Read about the helpless condition of humankind. 
that's true about you and me. Read about that. Read about that until that becomes real in your life and you realize your need for God in a deep way and then cry out. All who call on him, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, the scripture says. But if you don't feel that at some core that you need God, well then maybe you need to read the bad news more. Read the bad news. The true, it's true, but read the bad news about what the Bible says about your sinful condition before God so that the good news can ring and, and bring you joy and bring you alive. Because there's so many ways in which you're trying to medicate your life to not need the gospel. But the good news is you don't have to do all that. You don't have to look for love in all the wrong places first. You can go right to the source. And whatever you give up for God, he'll return more than that in your life. I'm not talking about, like, you know, some formula where, oh, good, now I know how to manipulate God. I'm talking about the fact that he is the sole satisfier. And he promises to give you more than you ever would give up for him. So I encourage you, just, if you need that, read the bad news again. Go back to chapters, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of Romans uh, it's, it's, a little do- it's a little discouraging when you read it, but you need to go down there, feel the weight of your sin, feel your lostness before God, feel that you are like a sheep that's gone astray. You've gone your own way. You need to know that about yourself. And I'm not telling you that to discourage you. I'm telling you that because once you know that, you'll see the gift of God for the treasure that it really is. You'll see Jesus for the treasure that he really is. And I'm telling you this so that you'll have the greatest joy in your life. I want you to have the greatest joy in your life. So you go down in the reality of your sins so that you can come up with with joy and gladness for what God has done. If you've been here with us at any time, maybe this is your first time here, and you see people and they are singing and worshiping God, and there's tears streaming down their face, they've got their hands lifted high, and you go, wow, they're really grateful. I don't feel that. Then read the bad news. So that you love the good news. And so that you're full of gratitude. It's funny, I just find it amazing again and again, the things that, should bring, that do bring us the greatest guilt in our lives, our biggest failures, our worst habits. God, in his plan, has meant to do a work in your life so that when you look at those failures, those things that make you wince right now and you don't even want to think about. He is meant in his grace to make those things the source of your greatest gratitude. You come to realize, you forgave that? You have grace for that? You still love me in spite of that? You have accepted me as a son or daughter? You've you've stripped off the dishonor and the shame that comes with that and you took it on yourself? You've taken my guilt You've given me a perfect track record with God that I didn't deserve, but it's mine. You've given me eternity with you. I'm just giving you a little bit of seed so that you can worship next time we come on Sunday or maybe the last song at the end. I want you to have a little bit that will fuel you so that it will come out of your heart. A gladness for what God has done for you. You'll be full of joy because of what God has done. Now, I'm supposed to be in Romans 4, and Romans 4, I'm looking at my time. Wow. Let me just read you some verses out of this. It says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Well, of course, he is the God of the whole world. 
Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God. There's only one. You cry out to him for him to save you. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify this, the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So there's only one God. But the question, because he's mostly at this point in his letter, he's writing to the religious Jews, right? He's just surprised them by the fact that they are also slaves to sin. They also need the Savior. They've also failed to keep God's righteous law and are guilty before him. But now he's, he's giving this incredible good news, and then he wants to unify the church. Remember in the little chalk talk thing up there, he basically had, here's the Jews and here's the Gentiles, and they have very different views of what it means to be a church together because of their backgrounds. And the Jews think we were the ones who received the law. We're God's special people, the Israelites. And so, you know, maybe we have a higher standing. Maybe we're in a better place than these other people are. And they, there is a tendency... It's funny, do you ever notice that, that sometimes religion does not unite? <laughs> this is what's happening. So Paul is wanting to unite them. He wants to have a harvest among them, he says, early in the chapters in Rome. But he also has got people who've never heard the gospel in mind, like the people in Spain, right, in chapter 15. He says, that's his intention. I want to I wanna build with you. I want to work with you. I want you to be the one who sends me out as a missionary to Spain. Because God cares about them too. And so I want you to understand that. But if you can't look across the aisle or if you can't look at the other people in your church, Jews and Gentiles, and you have some sort of disdain there or think that you're better than because of your heritage or your background, he said, I want to eradicate that. I want you to understand you're all equal before the foot of the cross. Because that's the basis on which we'll, be a, we'll care about people in Spain or France or Germany or England or wherever else he, they were hoping to go in, that, in those days. So he's not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of the whole world. And so he uses two examples. And I won't get to them today. Abraham and David. In two weeks, I'll, I'll tell you about Abraham and David. But I'm going to end with this. God's intention is for you to love him and love others. Jesus said the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, all your soul, and all your mind, right? Again, I'm trying to give you enough fuel to do that in worship, to do that in relationship with God, that you'll come with great gratitude, that your heart will be full of what he's done for you. And loving others, right? So God wants you with him in heaven and relationship with you for all eternity, but he also wants you in loving relationship with each other. And so to get people into heaven, God has to make them righteous. And that's what Romans is talking about. How, there's a way that's been revealed to be righteous with God, and it's through trusting what Jesus has done on your behalf. Awesome. But then there's a, another side that he's getting at in chapter 4. It's how to get them to love. In order to get them to love, he's got to get them to be humble. And have you, have you ever tried to get someone to be humble? Have you? I'll tell you one story. I had a soccer team, my kids. In fact, it was the one year both my kids, who were almost three years apart in age, I, I sort of squeezed the younger one up so they could both play on the same team and save me a bunch of nights out. And then I coached the team. And I've been coaching soccer teams for a few years now, and I knew the kids in the league pretty well. And when I saw the lineup that I got handed as a team, 
I was overjoyed. It was a stacked team. I couldn't believe I had all these really good players on one team. And so I'm as competitive as the next guy. I was planning to obliterate the rest of the league with this stacked team. So I worked on positioning. You, can't, you won't even believe. Like, I mean, these kids were like, I think the oldest might have been 12, the youngest were 10 or something. And I spent hours working out their positioning and their drills and how we were going to, by the end of the season, be dominant. Well, I hardly needed to do that. A couple of games in, I realized it, this team is so stacked, they probably can't even lose. They were that good. And uh, the kids caught on to that. And in fact, about two or three games in, a couple of the kids, when we do the handshake at the end, they were starting to mock the other team, and they're saying, we're undefeatable. Now, I had never said that. I knew that that was probably true, and, but it became a problem. So I tried to tell the kids, like, when I caught it, a couple times I caught it, and I said, no, no, we never do that. You just shake hands, be nice, and, you know, be a good winner. But we were winning by huge margins every game. It, I knew it got bad when I got a call from the league office. They said, other coaches are complaining about your kids in the lineups because they're laughing at them or they're being, and I'm like, okay. It was just two kids on the team, but I, I, and I had talked to them already, but I thought, how am I going to deal with this? I mean, I can give them a little talk every time, but it's a lot of kids to manage. When I turn my back, they start mocking the other team. We're undefeatable. And so I looked at the calendar of games yet to come, and I saw a match that was coming up against another team that I knew their lineup, and I knew we could beat, but they hadn't lost a game yet. And I circled that on my calendar. So the day came. And at the, when the day came, uh, I changed the position of all my kids. I took my best striker, my best goal scorer, and I put him in the net. I took uh, my oldest son, who was the most responsible defender, and I threw him out on the forward end, where I knew he would hate it out there. And I, and I took the kids who, got the, who were the least experienced, and I gave them the most playing time. And I took the kids who were my best stars, and I put them on the bench. And I managed that to lose that game. <laughs> and when we're getting into the car at the end, my oldest son was fuming mad. He didn't talk to me the whole way home. I was trying. I was trying to make them humble. I threw the game, basically, is what I did. I think if you do that professionally, you go to jail. Anyhow... <laughs> Maybe. This was my attempt to make good kids good soccer players without making them arrogant. And God's plan for making us good without making us arrogant is the gospel. So what we, we, I mean, the human heart, we love religious systems. We love ways in which it's like, well, just tell me the steps. What can I, how can I achieve? What's the, how can I, how can I be a real achiever in Christianity? And God is like, no. No, that's not how it works. Tons of religions work that way. They work that way. You do the steps. You gain the traction. You get elevation, you get honored, you get a platform, you get a pedestal. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is meant that everyone would recognize, I am a sinner saved by grace. You see sin in another person, you go, but for the grace of God, there go I. If anything, it's meant to kick out the pedestals. It's, made, it's meant to, to, to bring us low. Why? Because those who humble themselves before the Lord, he lifts up. 
He, he exalts the humble, and he humbles the proud. And so you don't want to be in this place in your life. I just, I don't want to be in this place in my life where I'm proud or I'm arrogant, and, and I find, like James says, that God is actually opposing me in that. Because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so Paul is talking to this church, Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews feel they've got one over on the other ones because they're the keepers of the law. And he just strips that away from them, exposes it for what it is, because he knows it'll be amazing. If, if they really get unity, if we really get the Spirit of God working in that church, if they, it's going to be an incredible church to send people to the nations, of which Paul wants to be one of them. I want you to stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just show us the reality of our condition. Show us how low. Show us how low. Lord, I know you, I know you even in praying this prayer, there's a safeguard on this because you do love us. And there's, I don't believe you're necessarily going to show us everything that we've ever done wrong or all the dark corners of our heart in one blow. I don't know that we could, we could stand up under that. But, Lord, would you, would you show us what you saved us from? Would you show us what you died for? There's got to be a reason why you had to go to the cross. If our sin was no big deal, you wouldn't have had to go there. It was obviously a very big deal that we rebelled against you, that we're a rebel creation defying our creator that we were born under the power of sin. Obviously, that power is significant, or you wouldn't have went to the cross. So, God, that power needed to be broken, and you did exactly what was needed to be done so that it could be. So, God, show us the depth of our sin so that we can see the greatness of your grace, so we can see the magnitude of your love, so we can revel in the cross and all it means for us, so we can have great joy with your resurrection and how that confirmed all that you said that would be ours through your death on the cross. Lord, we want to see, we want to see both because we want to not be satisfied or try to be satisfied with lesser things that don't work. We want to be deeply, richly satisfied with you. We want to worship with abandon. We want to have so many songs on our lips because we know the depths and the heights of your love. So, Lord, would you, I'm just praying this prayer for, I don't know if others will pray it too with me, but would you show me? Would you give me a fresh awakening to the reality of why your gospel is such good news and how it's such good news for everybody in the world? Could you make that? fresh and real for us again as we go through this journey through Romans. We ask that in your name.